Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, and before we get into this week's episode, just some very, very quick housekeeping up top. First, I want to say that, as usual, please continue to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcast. We love your ratings, reviewings, and they really help the show get in front of more people. So thank you so much to everybody that's been doing that. Hop in our Discord. The link for that is in the show notes of this episode and on social media. Really great community of pop fans. Great message board. Great smart discussion of pop always going on there follow us on social media pop pantheon pod and me at dj l-o-u-i-e-x-i-v on both twitter and instagram we're still taking submissions for our new audio editor position if you have audio editing experience and you're interested in working on this show with us please get in touch with me at poppantheonpod at gmail.com and let me know why you're interested and let's set up a time to chat. Maybe you can come work with us. Pick up our Pop Pantheon niche legend dad hat in our store at poppantheonpod.com. Love seeing everybody in their niche legend dad hats. It's really the best thing ever. It's how you let people know you listen to the coolest podcast in the world, guys. Really important. And while you're over at poppantheonpod.com, fill out our listener survey. We're trying to get some feedback from everybody on what you like about the show, what are your favorite aspects of the show, favorite episodes, etc. Just get a sense of how we can continue to serve you the quality content that you enjoy. I also want to quickly offer a correction from the Donna Summer episode that was brought to my attention by a listener named Cliff. Cliff and a few other people mentioned that we did not mention the 1989 hit This time, I know it's for real, which Donna Summer released in 1989 with the collaborators Stock, Aitken, and Waterman, who are famous for Kylie Minogue's early music, and which did hit the top 10 in the United States. And obviously, we don't have time on the show to talk about every single thing that a pop star does, but I do believe that that's something that should have been mentioned. I don't think it affects where she ended up in the pop pantheon at the end of the day, but it did get brought to my attention by a number of people, and that was an oversight on my part, so... This time I know it's a real great Donna Summer song that did reach the top 10 in 1989. So I just wanted to make sure we put that out there. This episode is about something I honestly admit was a huge learning curve for me when prepping for this episode. I will talk about this a little bit later, but K-pop has not been something that I'm particularly well versed in. It is a huge world of pop that is only becoming more influential, more powerful throughout the world, but it isn't something I consider myself an expert in. So this was a real journey for me diving into the music and discography of of this group and learning where they sit in the pantheon of K-pop and of global pop. So while I don't consider myself an expert, I did find the BTS expert to come educate me and everybody else about them. This, I think, is informative and interesting, especially for people that maybe don't know that much about K-pop and want to understand a little bit more about it and understand more about the role that BTS has played in globalizing this marketplace. Quick addendum before we get into everything. This episode was recorded a little while ago and there have been some developments since then, including the group going on a temporary hiatus. The boys are pursuing some solo projects. We didn't get to talk about that because that hadn't happened yet when we cut the episode. So I just wanted to make sure that we put that out there. I'm so excited to see what they do next and maybe we'll do a little follow-up at some point to address all of that stuff. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon BTS. Look, I need to come clean about something I'm certainly not proud of. 
Until very recently, I've been willfully ignorant of K-pop. It's nothing at all against the genre or culture. Obviously, super well-made and expertly performed glitzy and accessible pop music is sort of my thing. It's simply that, in my often way too rational for my own good brain, when it first began to flash across my radar on blogs and through social media and recommendations by critics I really respect in the early 2010s, it just felt like opening a door to a whole entire new pop ecosystem. One adjacent to and yet wholly separate from our Western canon, and that quite frankly overwhelmed me. It somehow felt like listening to one Wonder Girls song meant that I'd be embarking on months of research I couldn't muster. I realized this is crazy, but I just didn't go there. There. And I'd stubbornly held on to that idea until, of course, as I think for many similarly pig-headed Westerners, a group of seven guys called BTS became, over the last decade, not just the biggest K-pop act to ever walk the planet by about 10 million miles, but also, quite simply, some of the biggest pop stars of their moment, period. BTS's success made K-pop, at least for me and other Americans, impossible to ignore. And that they achieved this while also staying true to the core values and aesthetics of the culture they represent, not just crossing over themselves, but making K-pop a truly global force in its own right, has more than earned BTS a plum place in pop history. BTS, or Bulletproof Boys, and also Bongtan Boys, and please forgive my pronunciations here, were formed in 2010 when successful K-pop producer and CEO of the management company Big Hit Records, Bong Shiok, endeavored to create a hip-hop-oriented boy band. Bong began by recruiting three young rappers, RM or Rap Monster, Suga, and J-Hope, all of whom had had some buzz as underground solo acts before being asked to join the group. Bong rounded them out with four more traditional K-pop singers, Jimin, V, Jin, and Jungkook. While Bong envisioned a group that went against K-pop boy band norms by presenting the members as individuals, each free to express their own distinct POV and contribute to the song-making process, the group underwent some of the K-pop idol training regimens that the genre is famous for. In the early 2010s, under Bong's tutelage, BTS began living and training together, often putting in 15-hour days in order to refine their performing abilities and group chemistry. In June 2013, the group released their debut project and single, Too Cool for School and No More Dream, respectively. The first installments in what would become known as their school trilogy of albums, which also included Oh, Are You Late 2 that same year and the School Love Affair album in 2014. The music in this trilogy included message-driven concept records that challenged the lofty expectations placed on Korean school children, giving a voice to common frustrations felt by many in their generation in their home country. The music was also decidedly hip-hop oriented in a way that may be jarring to people who, like me until recently, only knew their latter period big crossover pop hits. The music in the school trilogy drew directly on both contemporary American trap sounds, as well as from 1980s and 90s boom bap sampling Tribe Called Quest styles and squelching Dr. Dre synthesizers, and the aggressive rap rock frat aesthetics of the Beastie Boys as on the single Boy In Love. <laughs> I'm not touching them. 
While the school trilogy was moderately successful, sending a couple singles onto the Korean charts and beginning to establish early iterations of the now mighty BTS army, they failed to make the group the all-encompassing K-pop stars we think of them as today. In 2014, BTS released Dark and Wild, which served as both an extension of the school trilogy while also housing further forays away from hip-hop and towards a more R&B-oriented sound. But BTS came into full bloom with their next endeavor, their youth trilogy, which began with 2015's The Most Beautiful Moment in Life Part 1 and Part 2, as well as 2016's The Most Beautiful Moment in Life Young Forever. Furthering the group's penchant for ambitious concept pieces complete with socially conscious messaging, this work explored the concept of youth from a panoply of angles, the good, the bad, the struggles, and the ecstasy of being young. The series both continued to expand the group's sound away from its hip-hop roots and towards a more all-encompassing, often EDM-influenced pop one, and turned BTS into megastars both in their homeland and across other Asian markets in which K-pop thrived, with a number of smash hit singles including I Need You, Run, and Fire. They also released the album Wings, later repackaged as You'll Never Walk Alone, in 2016, another concept album influenced by, rather incredibly, Herman Hesse's coming-of-age novel Damien, and which dealt with heady themes like Temptation and featured even more hits like Blood, Sweat, and Tears and Spring Day. Wings in its various iterations sold a whopping 1.5 million copies in its first month of release. Meanwhile, the group had also managed to make serious inroads in America, novel for a K-pop act, so much so that their next record, the first of a new trilogy, 2017's Love Yourself Her, debuted at a very impressive number 7 on the Billboard 200, while its lead single DNA became BTS's first charting song on the Hot 100, peaking at number 67. A Remix of their song Mic Drop, featuring the DJ Steve Aoki, did even better, peaking at number 28 and making BTS the first K-pop group to crack the top 40 on the American Singles chart. The lead single from the next part of the Love Yourself series, the EDM banger Fake Love from 2018's Love Yourself Tear, their first to be sung primarily in English, hit number 10 on the Hot 100, another first, and powered the album to a number one debut on the Billboard 200, the first time in history a K-pop group had achieved this feat. BTS's achievements both at home and notably here in the English-speaking world cannot be understated. The American marketplace is notoriously unfriendly to foreign acts, especially those who perform primarily in a language other than English. BTS's success stateside is nothing short of paradigm shifting, an achievement that, along with a series of recent Spanish-language crossover stars like Bad Bunny and Rosalia, is reconfiguring the breadth of what American popular music can encompass. That BTS managed to do so both by being extraordinarily elastic in their aesthetic approach willing to and adept at morphing to fit whatever market they're attempting to infiltrate, while also staying true to K-pop's ethos as well as their own of creating capital P pop music with meaning, is also astounding. Following the massive success of the Love Yourself series, which included other hits like the Nicki Minaj featuring Idol, BTS launched yet another successful concept package, Map of the Soul, which expanded their omnivore sonic palette even further to incorporate everything from 1980s synth pop to post Malone rock trap hybrids, including the global smash Boy With Love featuring Halsey. And in 2020, at the height of the coronavirus lockdown, BTS dropped B, a much smoother and quieter album, exploring themes of isolation that nonetheless featured their biggest global smash yet, their first Hot 100 number one, the disco-nodding Dynamite. They followed this up with a series of Hot 100 chart toppers over the last couple years, which include Life Goes On, Permission to Dance, My Universe with Coldplay, and Butter.
BTS is the best-selling act in South Korean history, having sold in excess of 30 million albums there. They are the first non-English-speaking and Asian act to hold sold-out concerts at both Wembley Stadium and the Rose Bowl, two of the world's biggest venues, and were named by the International Federation of the Phonographic Industry as the Global Recording Artist of the Year in both 2020 and 2021. BTS has won multiple awards, including American Music Awards, Billboard Music Awards, Golden Disc Awards, and have been nominated for two Grammys. They have 10 top 10 singles in the U.S. as well as six number one hits. BTS has appeared on Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world in 2019. Here with me to discuss the paradigm-shifting power of the mighty BTS is journalist and author of the book, BTS, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Tamar Herman. Okay, so I'm here with journalist and author. She is currently the senior culture reporter for the Hong Kong newspaper, The South China Morning Post. It's Tamar Herman. Tamar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. I have to admit right off the bat here that K-pop is a bit of a blind spot for me and has been, and I'm not proud of this, but it's definitely something that feels like its own world of pop that has its own rules, its own hierarchies, its own entire social cultural world that like I have been a little bit like afraid to even like dip my toe in because I'm like it feels just like a huge thing. So I'm really happy to have you on the show to maybe help educate me a little bit on both K-pop and I think maybe their most popular export, BTS. Happy to do so and I think definitely the most popular <laughs> export. <laughs> I've been for any anybody who's listening and doesn't know me, which I feel like is probably everyone who listens to you cuz I do cover quite a niche. I've been covering K-pop for nearly a decade now. <laughs> More than a decade? For a while. I used to write for Billboard and Forbes, recently moved to Hong Kong and then back from Hong Kong to cover K-pop and other international music and business-related industries for the biggest Hong Kong newspaper. I published a book called BTS Blood, Sweat, and Tears in August 2020. That was a really long time ago, and and I feel like I need to write another book already. So how did you get into K-pop? Like, where did your passion for K-pop and for BTS, like, begin? I became a K-pop fan in 2008, which is a really important year for K-pop because that's when YouTube really was, like, booming around the world. And it was the first time we really saw K-pop videos really going viral on the internet beyond Asia. K-pop has been internationally popular for many decades now. I know like for many people that might be a surprise, but K-pop's already a really solid industry. And so in 2008, there was a bunch of really popular viral hits from groups like Wonder Girls and Big Bang and Kara and Girls' Generation. is kind of considered like a tipping point for K-pop going from just being regionally popular in Korea and Asia, especially like Japan and Southeast Asia, and it started getting waves in more Western English language American media for the first time beyond just Korean and Asian diaspora communities where it was already pretty well known. So you had songs going viral and people started paying attention. And I was one of those people. Mm -hmm. So so I was in high school at that time. So it kind of was my high school, Uh, you know, at this time I was like going to share how old I am here, but like, it was like, you know, think of like Panic at the Disco (laughs) era of music over Starship Fallout Boy. That was like, I went to Bamboozle. Like that's what I grew Mm -hmm. up with. But so like, (laughs) while that was what was going on in high school, 
era tomorrow. I was also listening to K-pop at the same time. So they kind of like, for me, were two sides of a musical coin. Oh, interesting. How do you see them as related? I think that they're niche subgenres of music that we consider as being very internet based. Mm. Like, yes, all the bands I mentioned before, they did really well on radio in the US. But at the same time, I don't think if without internet culture, as we see it, like that was kind of the start of things versus the previous generation of musicians who are kind of less internet based. So like in the way that you see it, the reason that K-pop has become such an international phenomenon, like really wouldn't have necessarily even been possible without internet culture and internet music culture and the way that the internet has allowed disparate or sometimes like niche international genres to proliferate and move across borders like that's been such a critical part of k-pop's explosion internationally i think yes and no because you can't really say what would have happened if like the internet didn't exist because it'd be like saying oh the beatles couldn't come to the u.s because there was no right internet. like obviously <laughs> music just transcend borders sure, sure, but sure. i think nowadays so many artists just in general like those were like just my personal preferences in high school that happened to be very internet based but like nowadays so many artists are discovered through SoundCloud or they communicate with their fans through Twitter so I think the internet really in that period where I became a K-pop fan was when we started really seeing the internet be used by artists and be used by fans to promote their artists for the first time and things changed for the industry that's my long way of saying I became a K-pop fan in 2008 (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so glad to have you here. You have a long history with this. You literally have written the book on BTS. So this is going to be an incredibly informative and interesting conversation, I think. And educational because K-pop obviously is one of the biggest pop industries on earth right now. And it's only getting bigger and it's only crossing over further into American culture. So I'm really excited to help break this down for everybody on the show. So I guess where I'd like to begin is a little bit of like a dummy's guide to K-pop, like, cause I need it cause I'm the dummy. So can you talk a little bit about maybe in a super zoomed out way, just briefly, what is K-pop? How would you describe what K-pop is if someone just asked you point blank, the most basic question? It's a really tough question. It sounds like it should be really simple answer saying it's <laughs> Korean pop music. Um, but there are artists in Korea who are active today who you wouldn't necessarily consider a k-pop artist like there's always a question of sigh of gangnam style fame is he k-pop it's a tough question it it depends on who's answering it k-pop usually is referring to not only young but usually young idols idols meaning stars who are usually multi-talented not just singers or songwriters they sing they dance they often are acting they usually are in the modeling industry they're usually managed not only but typically managed by a big entertainment company and they usually and this is This is probably Mm -hmm. the defining thing in my mind for K-pop is they are building a connection with their audience. So they are building a fandom that is intentional, a marketing thing, because that is how you connect with audiences to become a bigger artist is if you have a fandom nowadays. So, you know, like how Beyonce has her beehive, every K-pop star has a fandom with a name and there is a connection between the audience and the fans. And that is something that I think is integral to K-pop. Is that something that predates our current, like, you know, because that's such a huge thing in American pop music, as you were pointing out, there's the beehive, there's the believers, Mm -hmm. there's the barbs, whatever. Is K-pop's adoption of that something that they started and we have picked up on later? Or do you know how the flow of that worked? Like that concept? of sort of like this strong bond with a defined stan army they didn't start it there's like a lot of writing and documentaries on like the beatles and their fans which are always the easiest one to go back to because they were really the first group that we saw like but i mean in in our modern conception of like 
internet stan armies. So it's not that Swifties didn't look at K-pop fans and take modern fandom behaviors from them, but it's something that tends to happen. And in Asia, idols, when we talk about pop idols, usually people look to Japan as the originator of the current Asian pop idol. And I'm not right. like using the word system, but like as the example of it, like Ecosystem. idols. Yeah, so yeah. like the way that mm-hmm. idol music began is really people typically point to Japan, but also like Motown was very idly, but they didn't have the same fandom connection so it's a little different Mm. but like to break it down like k-pop at its basis it's not necessarily music genre i don't prefer to use that word because it's really about the industry and the industry is based on usually company Mm. managed artists who build a big connection with their audiences which really makes them not very different from any other celebrity under signed to most labels nowadays so it's hard to explain in words you just kind of you know k-pop when you see it and it's k-pop right it's interesting that you bring up motown i feel like because that feels like a pertinent example in the sense that the brand of motown was almost bigger than the Mm. artists that were under motown or at least as big as them and i don't feel like that's how the label system in america works these days like people aren't like super focused on Beyonce is a Columbia (laughs) music artist you know what I mean but it feels like but it feels like a really big part of K-pop are these big record companies like YG Entertainment is the one that I think most people would recognize that are sort of like I don't want to use the word factory in a negative sense but like how would you describe like the role that these labels or record companies play in the creation of k-pop acts they're management houses so they do everything all inside so it's not the same way a record label that we think of in the u.s modern sense of things it's more like they do everything like it's not just music discovery they're the agents they're the recording company their distribution their management they're doing everything so it's like top down all inclusive everything which makes some pros but a lot of cons also. And it's very, as you say, the companies are very important for K-pop, mostly because the biggest names have the most money and reputation to keep doing it. So like right now, BTS's company Hybe is launching a new girl group, Le Seraphim, and there's a lot of expectations for this group to be good because it's coming from the company behind BTS. The same thing happens with SM Entertainment or YG Entertainment, which you mentioned before, and that's the home to like Blackpink. So people are expecting a lot from an upcoming girl group that that company is also going to launch. So there are companies that are reliable. And then there's a lot of smaller companies that are maybe a little bit less systematic in the way that they create artists or launch artists rather. But again, there's a lot of stuff that is systematic and there are top tier companies. And those are ones that everybody is like, has a lot of expectations for because they've been around for ages. And then there's newer ones like BTS's company Hive is a relatively newer one that has now blown up so big. It's one of the biggest entertainment companies Korea has ever seen. So there's a lot of relying on the branding of a company, almost like kind of buying luxury Mm. goods versus, you know, buying yes, indie. Right. Some people would rather buy Chanel and some people would rather buy, you know, the bag that your friend made, but it's a different preference. And it's sometimes those little brands also take over. So the industry is always in flux and always interesting, but there are big companies that are reliable for putting out really good K-pop artists and good K-pop music and marketing them in a way that is just like almost instant hit. And even if it's not, they're still probably doing pretty well. Right. Yeah. It, it almost reminds me a little bit of A24, the film company or something like yeah. that in the way that that's become like this moniker for like if it's an A24 film you know it's a certain sort of thing you know it's going to be a certain level of quality or you might assume that it might be that kind of thing I wonder if there's like a slight parallel there my question for you is historically speaking not necessarily talking about BTS in particular but Mm. in the history of this are these 
companies creating these acts like is it the kind of thing where they're like we want to put together a boy band and like this is our vision for the boy band and then like we're gonna cast it and we're gonna create the vision like is it starting from the top down like that or are they like in the american record company system going out and scouting and trying to find existing acts and then sort of putting them through the system it's a bit of both so now as the industry has developed the most common way of doing things is like you will hear of companies saying we want to have a new girl group coming out in a few years so come to our open audition and audition so like at bts's recent concert in las vegas their team was actually had open auditions so fans could come or anyone could come and audition for the company and i think i read that some of the producers and choreographers i believe were on site watching these auditions hoping that they could find people who they could potentially put into their company and sign them for training so like you get a contract as a trainee because it is the company's investment and then like you will hopefully if you make it you debut in a group or as a soloist so that is one popular way nowadays is auditions that's really popular often here of k-pop stars who have done that to get into the auditions nowadays there's like training programs you can take so you can sign up kind of like going to juilliard to audition to become a ballerina you're going to school or usually it's after school but you go like and you learn how to dance and sing and how to be acting on camera so it's it's very academically focused nowadays but then again there's also times where you'll hear of like my favorite story is a um this member of a group called nct taeyong his story is like famous because apparently someone was a scouting agent went over to him because he saw he had a nice face and he was like hey i'm from a big company let me chat with you at a cafe and he went along mostly because he wanted the free snack and right. now he and now he's like in a like a huge pop star and he's a really talented rapper and songwriter but it's kind of like they find the raw talent and a lot of the times it is based on their pretty faces and then you'll hear right. also just artists who are discovered either on soundcloud or nowadays tiktok or youtube there's a lot of people who came from youtube who were like youtubers who companies were scouting and they reached out like hey we like your music do you want to audition for us and occasionally you'll hear of like there's this one group called the rose and they were buskers and they started working with a company and they had some issues with the company so now they're not working with the company but like there's a lot of paths to becoming a k-pop star like you could be a child actor or something like everyone's always like oh trainee system right. trainee system but it's like do you really think that they're just like plucking people and putting them on a factory line no that's not how it works so it's way more interesting than that i think right so you really feel like that's like a misnomer that's been picked up that this is some sort of anonymous factory line production system that's actually not how you view it at all yeah i mean i I view it more kind of like how people train to be an athlete since they're very young and like i'm not saying that these things are great like we know like the gymnastics gymnastics i think blew that (laughs) wide open for everybody like and just like classically trained musicians like all of these people like we see them as training since they're young usually kind of pushed by their parents but also personally and like we don't hold them to the same standard so i think that it's not to say that like people aren't going into the system and being taught certain things and how to act in certain ways and being kind of managed in certain ways but I think when you view it more on par with other industries rather than how we view like artists in America being like grungy garage bands and like self-made people who haven't sold out like I think when you it's almost a kind of more maybe democratic I was gonna say like capitalistic but it's kind of a more decentralized idea where like it's not just the celebrity who is the mode of business but rather this is a company and this is the product we're doing and I don't want to make anyone take me out of context and say oh my god Tamara said k-pop stars are products but like the thing that they are selling is the artists brand and their music and everything that 
wraps around them. That's why you have so much merch and so many promotional videos and so many concerts. Like you're selling the whole package, but there's a whole team behind that. So like mm. if I go to a K-pop company to have like a meeting with someone, uh, I'll interview an artist and yeah, they'll have a huge PR team. Not to say that American artists or counterparts in any other country wouldn't also have a huge PR team, but they'll also be collaborating with them in different ways. So like maybe the manager, we think of it just as a manager, but that manager is actually in charge of talking to the artist. Like, do you want to do this thing? It's more collaborative in some ways, but also it's like working in a company. I always say like K-pop groups, fans are always saying like, oh my gosh, they're like a family. No, they're like a team at a company and they have to deal with their managers and they have to deal with the subordinates and they have to deal with everything. And they have like other people on each team who has a different job. Like you're the singer, you're the rapper, you're the dancer, you're the lead visual, which means that you're just really gorgeous. (laughs) And so each of you has your own role that you bring to the team. So when you think of these as less, like I always go to the garage rock band equivalent is what people think that a band should be but this is kind of more like this is your team at your office who all work really well together and they're all providing something which is being a great group together and being good artists together but they all come together and they're managed in a collective way and some artists really don't respond well like there's a lot of artists who leave their groups and some groups that just like stay together for 7,000 decades because they're just like this works for us right so it's really when you kind of reassess what you think a band should or shouldn't be so I think that's a lot of the stereotypes come from like about the factory system it's like oh no it's not real you put these random people in a group together yeah that's literally any other job (laughs) and they're just putting that to the music industry it kind of feels like almost like a streamlined version of the American music business system. It almost feels like a more lean, mean, eye on the prize way to like get music made and bands created efficiently. I don't know. It, it, it has a sleekness to it that's intriguing to me it, or something. It's definitely, I wouldn't say antithetical to like the American idea of what an artist is or something. I always compare right. it to like, <laughs> this is like really lame and tells you a lot about me. Patronage and like, renaissance art (laughs) these companies are saying there is talent there how do we invest in it and how do we market it and so that's what happens and like if you talk to anyone at these companies whenever i've spoken to anyone either on or off the record who's like a higher up at these companies they're not there because they're like okay pop will be lucrative i mean they'll hope for that but what they're really trying to do is just create really good music and give artists the bandwidth to do that but it's like on their terms it's like collaborative one of my questions is and i guess i maybe want to rope this into like setting up bts a little bit is like how did this system come into being and like with boy bands in particular can we sort of trace the history of k-pop through boy bands on some level and like how the stage was set for a band like bts to emerge so it's actually really interesting that you focus particular on boy bands because the original idols are from japan we tend to talk about and the original idols in korea we tend to talk about tend to be female groups so the whole thing kind of started with girl groups girl groups don't really do well on an international level like i love little mix but i'm so sorry america is not responsive and it sucks. <laughs> I love America's, you. We really don't embrace girl groups. It's no, weird. but boy bands, when you talk about like boy band legacy and lineage, you actually really have to diverge K-pop as a whole and BTS from that mm-hmm. because BTS is coming from the Asian boy band legacy and they are converging with the Western boy band legacy. So there's so many comparisons between BTS and the Beatles and everyone's always like, well, they're the first successful boy band since like One Direction and One Direction followed Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. But you would never look at BTS and One Direction and be like, ah, yes, they were inspired by One Direction or like they're following in One Direction's mm-hmm, footpath. So it's mm-hmm. a really divergent, it's a similar concept, but different histories and different backgrounds 
background. So like when people talk about BTS, one of the big talking points is that they have a lot of music that has socially conscious messaging or some stuff that talks on politics. And that's something that's actually from Mm -hmm. Korea's Mm -hmm. boy band lineage is really important. And it's actually very common. Mm -hmm. So the first, actually it's 30 years ago this month, modern K-pop song is said to have been born. It was a song called I Know or Nan Arayo from a group called Soteji and Boys. And actually, one of the boys started YG Entertainment, which oh, wow. Blackpink is under. So that song took off in Korea. It was seen as the first modern K-pop song in that it was genre-blending and it was very performance-based. So you wouldn't necessarily call Soteji and Boys a K-pop group, but they showed what you could do with it. And they had intense interactions with their fans and like really intense relationship with fans. And that was kind of the first time that happened. And then Isuman at SM Entertainment, he was like, we can keep doing this. And he was already a singer and he was already kind of investing in the industry and he launched another group called HOT and they're usually considered quote-unquote the first k-pop boy band the reason I mentioned these two groups is because they both Soteji and boys and HOT a lot of their songs were about societal issues so like Soteji and boys have songs that rallied against intense schooling and education pushing the need to thrive in education onto kids and HOT had one song that is just so impactful it's a song called Aya and the song is referencing and directly criticizing a kindergarten fire where the teachers abandoned the kids and the kids died <laughs> And like, you don't think of K-pop as releasing music about that nowadays, but it is something very integral to K-pop as an industry. So that's why when you do hear of groups like BTS and nowadays a few others who do like address Mm -hmm. either mental health or societal issues or politics, like that's a very big element Mm. of K-pop. And like, when you look at Western boy bands, that's not necessarily something that you think of. The reason I always bring up the Beatles is because the Beatles did do that. Like, you know, they were anti-war. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Yeah, like modern boy bands like Backstreet and Sync, One Direction, no. <laughs> you don't think of as like, you know, being socially conscious necessarily. Right. So, I mean, individually <laughs> as people they are, but like that's not what we think of a boy band should be or could be even. But in Korea, that is, these are voices of a generation and the groups that are the biggest really resonate, not just because they're singing about love or whatever. Not that love songs are bad. BTS has many, many love songs and so do many, many K-pop groups, many, many songs about love. But I think the groups that stand out and have like laid a path in K-pop's history have leaned into that or they've been aware of that. Things changed for a while. It was out of trendiness and it then picked up again around the start of BTS's career. So that's just my way of saying that the lineage mm. of K-pop boy bands is very different than I think what Westerners tend to think of as boy bands. Yeah, it's it actually is interesting thinking of positioning them in the like, rock lineage more so than the modern pop star boy band. Like some of the ethos of the music and their desire to make music that has more heft to it or more meaning to it and also like to form this like very deep emotional connection with their fans beyond just being like hot or like having the sound of the moment kind of almost as you keep bringing up the Beatles, like positions them more more in the legacy of classic rock-oriented boy bands of the 60s, perhaps, 
more so than it does in the lineage of more contemporary 21st century boy bands. Yeah, I don't want to, like, make anyone who's listening to this think that, like, every K-pop song that maybe you've heard and you don't speak Korean is, like, intensely about no, 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 living no. in 2022. No, but it is striking when you go through BTS's music. Like, that clearly is a huge aspect of what they do. Every single record, every single song has, like, a very clear and distinct message that's meant to be uplifting or meant to make their fans feel seen in some deep, meaningful way. So let's talk about BTS. So what (laughs) briefly is kind of the history of this group coming together? How does it form? I think we're talking about like kind of the early 2010s. How does BTS come into being? BTS was put together under a company then known as Big Hit Entertainment. It's now Big Hit Music under HYBE Corporation. I believe it's a corporation. And it was Mm -hmm. founded by this guy named Bang Shiok. And Bang was a very well-respected music producer in Korea. He used to work with, most prominently, a producer called Park Jin Young, who is the head of JYP Entertainment, which is the company behind groups like Twice and ITZY and a lot of other really intense K-pop groups. And so Bang was a really big industry player. He wrote, like, huge, huge hits. He had like started working in collaboration with JYP on a few groups and they had released some groups to some success and they had some pop vocal groups like 2AM and 8 and they had a girl group called Glam, which kind of self-destructed. It was a disaster. (laughs) And they decided to create a boy band. Boy bands are the most lucrative artists usually in Korea for companies. The fans are happy to spend money is kind of the assumption, which is a not nice assumption. And don't assume that because girl groups also make a lot of money. That transcends international borders, I think. Yeah, girl groups also make a lot of money. But I think boy bands have a special commercial power throughout the world. Boy bands tend to do well. So most K-pop companies to really do well, they need some successful boy bands. So if you're creating a new company or relatively right. new company, you're going to invest in a boy band. So Bang Shiok, the story mm-hmm. goes that Bang didn't want to create just an idol pop group. There was a lot of boy bands on the scene and he was going to lean into hip hop and he reached out to underground rappers and b-boyers and he created like a whole crew. It was going to be kind of like Brockhampton of K-pop, but it didn't really go <laughs> that way in the end. It ended up... <laughs> it ended up... So BTS currently has seven members and three of them are from the hip hop scene and the other four are kind of more traditional k-pop backgrounds like dance training or acting training or more typical Mm k-poppy and so the members as we know them they debuted as bts on june 13th It's the seven members. The first three who were like the hip hop backgrounds are RM, Suga, and J Hope. And RM was like a prodigy in the rap scene. Long time so I'm rap monster. And I'm 19. I got no raps to vote. I know that features mine still. Sugar was a producer and he realized that you couldn't really make money as a producer so you need to maybe be in a group 
And J-Hope was a dancer, like a street dancer. And right. like he was famous for that. These three were very well known in the community and they were really top tier already. And there's a big hip hop scene in Korea, generally speaking, yeah. right? Yeah. So hip hop in Korea had a big moment or like a big you know, decade in like the 90s and early 2000s. And a lot of precursors to like, as we think of K-pop stars in modern era were like hip hop groups or trios or crews or just like collectives doing their thing so nowadays there's still a lot of integral artists who are active who are either collaborators with k-pop groups like epic high or tiger jk and yun mire or just involved in the industry and they were like that era's hip-hop artists but in 2012 and 2013 like leading into like the era of bts there was a really popular tv show <laughs> called show me the money and it was uh-huh. it's still airing i think it's like in its 20th season i don't know and it was just really popular it was a competition show shining light on hip-hop artists and like some big name hip-hop artists would be judges and then people would compete and it was shining light on a lot of new rising talent and it breathed new life into like the hip hop scene in Korea. So this is like the state of things that BTS debuted in. So the, I've introduced the three hip-hop-ish members. I say ish yeah. because the group, mm-hmm. you don't look at it right now and you're like, ah, yes, this is a hip-hop crew. Well, that was one of the most shocking things for me as someone who like was not familiar with non-American <laughs> popular BTS songs before I was doing my research to do this with you. I was like, fucking floored about the way that their early music is so overtly hip-hop oriented i guess i'm the good guinea pig here (laughs) for like your typical like ignorant american fan where i was just like holy shit like this was really put together as a hip-hop centric boy band to begin with that was very surprising so k-pop in general almost always incorporates some hip-hop elements groups have rappers or if you're a soloist you'll often collaborate with a rapper so like hip-hop is really integrated into like just any general pop song in Korea. That's why K-pop isn't a genre because there's no rules. That's one of the right. things people always talk about. K-pop so experimental. And it's like, yeah, because they just, nobody cares about rules. It's a good song is a good song. Mm. So the other four members, they came to Big Hit in various ways. Jimin has a modern dance background. Jin has a acting background. V is very attuned to jazz music. Unlike he played the saxophone, mm-hmm. that's like a big talking point. And then the final member is Jungkook, who literally, <laughs> he's known as the golden Magne. Magne is like the youngest member of the group. It's a familial term in Korean that you use to like refer to like the youngest of your team or your group of friends, like, or your younger sibling. They're the Magne. And he's considered the golden Magne because he auditioned for a TV show in Korea. He didn't make it onto the TV show, but the, his audition went around the industry so fast, and he got a billion offers from different companies. They were like, "We want this kid. He's super talented." Was it seven? I don't remember who was seven offers like or nine offers. There's just like a lot of offers. Every company was like, "Jungkook, come here." And if I remember correctly, he ended up going there because he had heard of RM's reputation and he wanted to be at the same company as RM. Mm. So like this group was like an interesting group. Like you'll hear of K-pop stars who have backgrounds in the industry and people know who they are. Like they won a contest or people like knew them. But BTS just kind of all came together in a very interesting way for pretty much all of them. And this all speaks to the fact that like their whole thing is about their integrity and their authenticity, which is kind of their calling card. So you're saying that that was kind of on deck right from the beginning in the way that the group was formed. That was counter to a lot of the ways that K-pop had been conceived or marketed as in the past. Yes and no. I don't want to like 
like make it sound like no members of BTS ever went through training or anything because like they don't really talk about it that much. So we right. can't say they've none. But of- at least in the way they were presenting themselves. Yeah, and the company itself, they people who picked to be at this company, Big Hits uh, slogan used to be music and artists for healing. Like the company's ethos was grand. It was we're gonna create music that is resonating with people, and that's a basic tenet of being BTS. So from like day one, their first single was called No More Dream, and it was about student life in Korea. They were all pretty much teenagers at this point. And so they were talking about their peers and their lives as students. And I mean, they weren't talking about it directly. Like the song isn't autobiographical, but it's about the feeling. Korea is known to have a very rigorously academic culture where students study from sunup to sundown. It's very, very rigorous. They have a really intense vision towards life of like, you go to school, you go to high school, you go to college, you go to a job, and that's like a stereotype. And so a lot of BTS's early songs, considered their school trilogy of albums, are like counter to this either. They're singing literally about, we need to take over this mindset and like, it's okay if you don't have dreams, literally. That's like what some of their songs are about. Some of their songs are literally, mm. they have a song called NO, which stands for no offense. And the music video for it is very very sci-fi and it's like them rallying against like dystopian school guards that are forcing them to study. And then they have other songs. Their music videos are more like rebellious schoolboys in love. Like they literally have a song called Boy in Love. You might be familiar with Boy With Love, which is a more recent song with Halsey, but like, but Boy In Love was kind of more like school age love and romance. And not to say nobody in Korea has ever sung about these issues before, but BTS were really putting their all, like their albums have always been really intensely message based and focused. And that's something they've been doing since like day one. And it's really, you see it through different eras of album releases and different storytelling they incorporate or different art forms that they incorporate into different album release cycles or promos or something. They're always telling a story. Sometimes you don't know that story. And sometimes it's like, it turns out like five years later that they were maybe doing something. And sometimes I honestly am just like, did you just like make that up now or something? And I really don't know. I really don't know. (laughs) Well, I think not, but I don't know. So we're talking now about their debut sort of series of EPs. And this is a trend in the BTS catalog. And I don't know if this speaks to a bigger K-pop thing, but they kind of have these eras where numerous releases get lumped under a certain concept or idea or umbrella. Mm -hmm. Like, so this first one, as you said, is referred to as their school trilogy. And I'm really interested in what you were talking about in terms of what that meant. Because of course, for me, you know, I'm listening to this music. I don't speak Korean. So I'm reading about this stuff and I'm like, oh, okay, this is a message about school life in Korean culture or whatever. So what are you kind of saying that like they're sort of providing almost lyrically like a salve, almost like, hey, we see you. We know being in school is difficult for all of these reasons and we relate to that and we're here to say like, it's okay if you don't have big ambitions or it's okay to struggle or have, like, is that kind of like what the message of these songs are on the whole? Sometimes. And I mean, like they also have songs that are literally like dream big, like because big cars, big dreams. And that's the same song sometimes. But 
Right. They, like the whole, the <laughs> so whole, basically the opposite message. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, like, um, the whole idea, like, they actually, and then they respond to that in a song a few years later or on a performance or something. Right. The whole thing behind BTS's career, from my perspective, this is my little perspective, yeah. is that the stories that they're telling relate are not just universal messages. Like, everybody, not necessarily just about school, but, like, you know, we all go through struggles with work or achieving, but they also tie into, like, the mm-hmm. stage of life that BTS's members and also the assumption of their fans being around their right. age are. So like they start with the school trilogy and then they go yeah. to the most beautiful moment in life trilogy, which is kind of about growing up and how right. you deal with growing up and trauma created by adults around you. It's really intense, but right. not every song right. is about that. Right. Even the average Korean listener isn't listening to every BTS song and like, oh, that's what this song is about. You have to be in, right. in it. So it's almost like the message is more about the super narrative of the project and less about like what the actual songs are usually about. Or, or there's some songs really are about the message and then some songs just aren't. Yes. Yeah, so some songs are so some songs aren't some songs are hidden meeting some aren't it's kind of like marvel movies you can enjoy a marvel movie without seeing every single marvel movie right right or you can enjoy it for just the action sequences or you can enjoy it for the broader subtextual meanings of it or something right and like you might want to watch all three thor movies or maybe you'll just want to watch the first one like or third one right so you don't need to know it all but it's something that is world building in k-pop is like a whole thing nowadays and right BTS, they literally have, it's called the BU, like the BTS universe or Bangtan universe. Bangtan, right. to clarify, because I have not said it, BTS's name in Korean is Bangtan Sonyeondan, and it stands for Bulletproof Boy Scouts. Right. <laughs> and their <laughs> English name meaning has been changed to Beyond the Scene. Mm. But that's a recent addition. It used to just be BTS's because of Bangtan Sonyeondan. So still you're here like Bangtan, so the BU or BTSU and that's literally like they will put a little hashtag like hashtag BU to let the audience who are interested you don't have to to know that this is part of that storytelling and this is part mm-hmm. of the convoluted story. I see, I see, I see, I see. And I so see. like they had tied in webtoons or comics, but now they have a different one. So it's just a lot of storytelling. Right. So how would you describe on the school trilogy, the musical aesthetic that they're working in? Like what is the sort of sound? What are the genres that they're pulling on specifically in this early body of work? It's definitely hip hop and rock, a little grungy pop era. They still had some pop. You'd hear some songs and you're like, or a lot of R&B, but you would hear songs in they're still k-pop they don't not fall under that umbrella as we think of having dance and elements and electronic but it was definitely more hip-hop-ish a lot of their albums from this time in their earlier days literally were sampling from great hip-hop artists i heard shimmy shimmy uh, on one song i heard like some tribe called quest feeling nods on certain songs big dr dre squelching synthesizers on that song if i ruled the world That was truly shocking to me. I was literally (laughs) like, what? Because like, as I said, like, I'm a fucking neophyte, so I don't know anything about this. And I was literally like, I turned to my friend when I was listening to it and I was like, did you realize that BTS was an aesthetically 90s nodding hip hop boy band? I couldn't believe it when I was hearing, as you were getting out, ciphers. Like they have three minute basic like ciphers ciphers uh, in the middle of of their albums. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, 
내 이름은 S.U.G.A. 다른 래퍼들은 전부 내 뒤에 오늘도 세근한 입이 뒤에 이리 갔다 저리 갔다 겹바닥을 놀려 너의 랩을 A lot of stuff was early days like them exploring how to put their own spin on great hip-hop releases and then they created their own stuff and right so i think like yeah if like you only have ever heard bts's butter you're probably like what the hell tomorrow yeah that was me that was me i was literally like holy shit this is so <laughs> fascinating like and it's very aggressively masculine in a certain way that i was intrigued by there's certain what i consider like americanized male hip-hop posturing masculinity on these songs that was somewhat surprising to me yeah so over the years they definitely have shifted gears it's been a pretty i don't know if gradual is the right word but it's been a very growing up maturation is the right, right word they've developed themselves and it's not that they never have hip-hop intense songs anymore but it's definitely more old school bts than 2022 bts so my next question for you is how is this early work the school trilogy received like do bts after this early period of releases become successful in korea become stars on the level that we think of them like how is this music received in a commercial sense i guess commercially they were actually really well received in the u.s from k-pop fans so mm. bts started resonating with a lot of fans who like hip-hop they were like oh this is cool there were a few other groups at this time in korea who were really doing well with like k-pop hip-hop leanings they were part of a trend but they were really doing it really well and really resonating in korea they faced what are you doing-ness where like the hip-hop industry didn't respect them like indie hip-hop artists were like calling them out like they got into beefs it was very hip-hop <laughs> and they um oh so they were sort of like getting tagged as like you're not real hip-hop this is like a boy bandy version of hip-hop that we can't take yeah. seriously like, that is hilarious to think of like american traditional hip-hop tropes just being like transposed onto this entire other inter- that is just the funniest thing ever yeah like there's one very famous radio show where like rm and sugar were asked point blank like are you really hip-hop i don't remember if it was exactly it, but i think pretty much they were like well you're wearing eyeliner so you can't wear hip-hop and they got like so offended <laughs> whatever like okay shut up anyway it was like a famous instance there's a lot of k-pop groups that come out like every year 2013 was a really 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 big year for k-pop right so the scene was just really really full and so bts were kind of on people's radar as like a little rising rookie group but it wasn't really until a few years later in korea that they really took off well let's talk about that a little bit so you say like they kind of have like this is a minor breakthrough but they're not necessarily like the big deal that we think of them today on the backs of this first few eps yeah so it really took a while they debuted in 2013 right but it really took until 2015 for them to really really take off in Korea they kind of switched things up a little bit then so they were done with their school era where like they had already built a very sizable following like they were already winning like if not awards but like nominations and stuff like they were getting recognition as a group under this well-known producer they were building a following and building an audience you'll often hear fans say oh they're like underdogs from a small company which is true they weren't resonating with the industry like their company wasn't connected enough they weren't making enough waves but they were still performing in the u.s they were on like an educational hip-hop variety show where they went to the u.s the show is fascinating and sometimes awkward and problematic but like they literally met with hip-hop and r&b greats to learn about hip-hop and r&b in la i have to tell you right now I'm a, let's let's start with the worst last you guys were f- terrible yeah sorry sorry so they were gaining ground it was tough 
it was like not an easy period for them like they have Mm. songs where they literally talk about they were saying like we literally were waiting for other groups to like pull out of shows or people to pull out of tv shows so we could get a spot like it wasn't an easy time for them and so this is kind of typical of k-pop where like if you're not from a big company it's really hard to get your footing and get your foot through the door even if you are producing the greatest music of all time and so there was a lot of stress and struggles at this time and then in 2015 they revamped and they rethought and they had already at this point been promoting internationally they released a japanese album in 2014 they were finishing up Mm -hmm. the school era and then in 2015 they released this song called i need you So they released this album called The Most Beautiful Moment in Life Part 1 and it started their second trilogy, The mm-hmm. Most Beautiful Moment in Life 1. You'll often see fans lean into the Korean title and it'll see an acronym H-Y-Y-H. So if anybody listening to this ever sees that, that's what this is talking about. And right. they changed things up and they moved away from hip hop and they moved more into like synthy dance pop and EDM and some more mm. R&B. Is that like a purposeful aesthetic shift do you feel like in order to expand their appeal like do they realize that this uber mask kind of 90s throwback hip-hop vibe is just like not the thing that's gonna make it happen so i don't really know if it was like bts and the people who their collaborators like their artistic collaborators and stuff like i honestly don't know what is planned and what's just we need to change things up right. at this point like i don't know right. like was it's it a little really opaque originally... like this it is kind of hard to know like they're, they're a little bit opaque about the system of how they create this stuff essentially right like was it always planned that they would just do three albums and then three albums and then three albums and then like i mean something's change now because of the pandemic now they just did a one-off album right. but like was this all planned or who knows i don't know right. they haven't told me when right. they tell me i'll let everyone know yeah. so they changed things up in 2015 personally i feel like it has to be a conscious just awareness of also just like music shifting like in korea there was a shift away from like the show me the money era it wasn't over but it lagged we started seeing difference change in music tastes and preferences right and like the most beautiful moment in life is really when bts's storytelling took off like their music video started incorporating like a long storyline that would follow them through different music videos you didn't need to know that to watch them but like it was something that started yeah. and they started doing social media teasing and, and when I say social media teasing I'm not meaning like the normal like we're releasing an album soon out this date or something like they were literally at a certain point of this whole storytelling thing like they had fake Twitter accounts and fake Instagram accounts and fake websites that like people had to go to it's to like insane. try to put this story together the machine behind this stuff is astounding the pay- with which they release music, the way that each album cycle comes complete, as you're saying, like these website revamps and all of these marketing techniques, it really puts our system to shame. It's insane to process. Like, I couldn't even believe it. So they usually, not always, but they usually release two tracks back to back so like one comes out one month and then another one comes out a few weeks later Mm -hmm. so they released Dope which came out which was a little bit more hip hoppy yeah this reminded me of Jason Derulo's Talk Dirty (laughs) (laughs) the idea of it wasn't Talk Dirty at all is literally about your dreams and like what you want to be are you saying that Talk Dirty is not about dreaming about who you want to be (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I guess it could be if that's your uh, if goals. Nowadays, if they do do release a few songs together, usually one is more dancey. One is a little bit more, I wouldn't say lighter, but it's a little bit less intense. And then the other one is usually like really intense. So like you have I Need You mm-hmm. paired with Dope on the first album. And then the second album had Fire paired with Save Me. And Save Me is like total EDM drop. Let me And fire is like fire, like it's really intense. They definitely also lean aesthetically in this series, I feel like, into kind of like Diplo, Skrillex, Major Lazer kind of feeling vibes, like Moombaton. That era of American EDM feels like it was a huge aesthetic influence on the music of this particular period. <laughs> yeah, like you mentioned Moonbaton, and that was like the third album from the trilogy was Wings. That was fronted by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Blood, Sweat, and Tears is like famous for its Moonbaton integration. And then they also, from that same album's reissue with Korea, was Spring Day and Not Today. And Not Today was the like bombastic one. And Spring Day is like their biggest hit in Korea. Right, and Spring Day is like their Bruno Mars, just the way you are era. Wait, so explain this to me. What is Wings? It was Spring Day not on Wings. I'm getting, wait, I'm getting a little bit mixed up here. Okay, so for this era, the the most beautiful moment in life one, yeah. it was three albums, the two, the most beautiful moment in lives. And then it was the third one was called Wings and the repackage, which is the reissue was called You Never Walk Alone. What is the general message and ethos of the most beautiful moment in life and Wings series? Like what's the emotional message that they're delivering? delivering our storyline that they're delivering on this particular series. <laughs> it's convoluted. There's some really intense philosophical and literary elements that they drew on, but the whole point right. is like you need a TLDR, it's essentially that like the most beautiful moment in life is youth and how you as a person relate to your youth throughout the rest of your life. Right. Okay. No, so that most beautiful moment in life is youth or like you as you grow from your youth if you're no longer in youth. All right. So as you said, like they have the two EPs, then there's Wings. Wings is like technically like kind of like their biggest breakthrough record to that point, right? I Need You was their real breakthrough. It was when they started winning major, major awards in Korea and they started really like going from like a low to mid-tier group with their own dedicated audience, but to getting like hit song after hit song. Like from I Need You on, every song was a hit. Every song before then were also like doing well. Everything from then on to now, every single one was a hit. And aesthetically, this is like more like the BTS that we know today. It's less chains and bling and jerseys and more direct directly centrally pop oriented. Yeah, and I mean just it was so EDM-y at this point. They are also weirdly equally fluent in like EDM and R&B. Sometimes when they lean fully into like crooning R&B and again, I'm not great at like differentiating which singers are which and I know that there's certain of them that have different strengths from one another. But there's a song on Wings called Lie that almost felt like it was a Motown song. They're very adept R&B singers. So that was Jimin's solo song. On previous albums, the hip hop 
members had had solos or been like on trios together but this was the first album where every group member had their own song so that was Jimin's solo right. song and so does that help us understand like what each of their strengths are like can you walk us through a little bit what each of their solo songs like shows us about the individual members each of the members have their own strengths and everything but they often tell stories so like J-Hope's song J-Hope's like the funky member of the hip-hop-ish members J-Hope tends to have a more funky vibe to his solo stuff and Mama was like a song about ostensibly his relationship to his mom mm-hmm. and it was like really cool funk And Sugar Song, which is First Love. If you're just hearing the title, you're probably like, oh, that's so nice and romantic. It's about his piano and like how he got into music because of his relationship with his piano. And they're primary songwriters and sometimes co-producers on most of these songs, right? They're very involved in the creation of them. Yes, yeah, so I mean, they have writing credits from very early on in their career, right. but you started seeing it more around then. So like the members had production credits, but it really started taking off around the most beautiful moment era and they still were working with the same collaborators most k-pop groups they work with the same like executive producers for most of their careers so like there's someone right. who is right their main collaborator or is in charge of working with them and the songwriters they work with to create like a cohesive group identity right but because k-pop doesn't have to play by the rules of like silk sonic needs to have a right. certain sound to it right right but right bts doesn't need to or nct doesn't need to you can pick something else right bts almost always works with the same actual producers so they usually work with p dog and mm-hmm. You started seeing their names more as producers, as more as songwriters. Other members started songwriting more. The rappers typically wrote their own raps all along. Mm -hmm. But like the members are really big on live streaming after an album's Mm -hmm. release or before an album's release. And Mm -hmm. RM will talk often. Go, yo, I was like working on this song and then I was having a conversation with this member and we decided on X, Y, and Z. So you started seeing it more and more and more and hearing them talk about it more and more. And they talk about their inspirations and what song they kind of were like, ah, this one isn't working. So we're going to start something new. And now we have this song. And that's how we ended up with this song. So they'll tell you kind of what it was. And that's really started becoming even more and more and more integral to them as a group of their own spin on things right because their whole thing is like their level of authenticity as we mentioned earlier feels like a huge through line and a huge bedrock for what bts is so blood sweat and tears and as you mentioned spring day which are from wings and you never walk alone part of this whole era respectively set off their most successful run or the beginning of their massive success in korea this era wraps up they're probably would you say like one of the biggest k-pop groups but they still haven't really broken through in western english-speaking countries following you never walk alone right i'm only tentative because i remember being at those concerts and they were already yeah but i mean like they're not charting (laughs) they're not having like radio hits yet in america right this was at the point where they were starting to get radio because it feels like to me their big breakthrough though obviously they have these massive ambitions and like they seem like they're primed at this moment to be potentially the most successful k-pop group in english-speaking markets to date but it feels like that really starts to come into fruition during this next era which is the love yourself era so can you talk to me a little bit about the love yourself era like what's going on aesthetically there what that era is all about and why that's the moment where b BTS starts to click in a way that maybe no K-pop act ever has before in like a mainstream English speaking context. 
Yeah, so it was definitely more similar to the most beautiful moment in life musically than the school one. So still like continuation of EDM, a lot of synths and just a lot more R&B, still hip hop. Mm -hmm. So they have Love Yourself, Mm -hmm. Her, which was the first one. And then Love Yourself, Tear came out after. So Love Yourself, Her was very light and more romantic leaning and more... Yeah, a little smoother. Right, and DNA, which is the lead single from Love Yourself, Her, is their first Hot 100 hit. Yeah. It's like a super EDM-y, bright pop song. <laughs> it has that great mid-2010s trope of whistling on it. I want it this up. This up. That like reminded me almost a little, this is going to be like the gayest thing I say today, which is that it reminded me a little bit of Hilary Duff Sparks. (laughs) (laughs) I do love that song. Is there something special about DNA to your understanding that makes it the song that clicks in America for the first time? Like, is there something unique about it? It wasn't. I mean, it was, but they were already so big that it was just getting airplay. But the song that really is considered the one that clicks was actually the other one on the same album. It's a remix. Right. So they released Mic Drop on the album and then they re-released it with Steve Aoki and Designer. Right. Oh my God. R.I.P. Designer's career. Sorry. (laughs) So Panda was a huge hit. Steve Aoki, you know, is a huge guy. So they collaborations are a great way to break into a new market because you introduce Mm -hmm. yourself to a different audience. So they got Steve Aoki's audience. They got Designer's audience and it just clicked. And like, I literally remember I was at a friend's wedding in Hawaii. We were like passing a popular tourist bar and they were blasting mic drop and i was just like wow look at this like i literally was like in hawaii at my friend's like post-wedding party and i was like filming on my phone for friends back at home i was like you guys they're playing mic drop i remember being very excited That's a beautiful story because it really does help illustrate the fact that like this really was like a huge foray. This feels like a breakthrough moment for both this band and for K-pop in American popular music. Yeah, I mean, it was like industry folks started really paying attention. It was also at this point where we were well into like the era of understanding that artists need to use social media to connect with fans. And we started seeing more acknowledgement of like the fan base of BTS and just K-pop fans in general. So like you started really seeing around this time more and more top pop artists coming up kind of through their fandoms or through social media. So like BTS were really special for their own reasons, but they were kind of the part of this crowd of artists who we started seeing really taking off around then. And so to tap into collaborators and they just did so, so much. At this point, it's almost like the fan base coalesces and they power the songs onto the radio more so than like a top-down approach is kind of what you're getting at. The fans were talking to radio stations. They were sending flowers to radio stations. They did like a call-in campaign essentially for a lot of radio right. stations. Like, please play right. Mic Drop. Please play these songs. Play BTS. Right. We want BTS. And so it, it was like a roots effort to get BTS on American radio. And actually there's like a lot written about the struggle to convince the radio that BTS is a big deal because everybody else Mm. on the planet knows but radio is still very heavily monopolized so convincing them to play this group that radio 
studio maybe industry heads don't care about or right. they don't have any investment in so they don't see it like why should we play that or like maybe our average listener doesn't like them who cares they're the biggest right. group on the planet play them yeah so uh-huh. it was like a grassroots efforts it loops back to what you said at the beginning of the conversation about the way that the internet is such an integral part of bts's ability to break through all of these barriers because people were discovering them teen girls whoever the fans were in america didn't need gatekeepers in america in order to get on the bts wave before even like the powers that be in america understood that this was something that really could be huge here okay so they have this big breakthrough with mic drop then they have an even bigger breakthrough with their second part of this series which is love yourself tear and the single fake love fake love so can you talk about what differentiates love yourself tear from love yourself her and what fake love is like and why that song becomes like their first top 10 hit in america you think? again this is a generalization because the two albums are aesthetically differently packaged but at right. the same time all the album has different elements to it so right. this album has fake love which is like really intense emo hip-hop intense dance like intensity is just like the theme yeah. of this part of the series <laughs> so love yourself yeah. tear is more angsty so the idea behind the love yourself era is love yourself her was kind of a romanticized idea about loving somebody right. else love yourself right. tear is how the hell do i love somebody else and the answer in love yourself answer is like you have to love yourself first before you can love uh, someone else so like her is more romantic tear is more angst and answer is more self-aware <laughs> that's not a, yes, that's not right. anything in relation to those two emotions right so tear is just generally more intense and more reflective yeah there's like this really aching song the truth untold that was like quite gorgeous yeah. actually it's I gorgeous mean, you know that I can't show you me, give you me. It's all I have, my simple, your son of sir. But I still want you. There's like a sexy vibe, like 134340 is like very sensual and like kind of sexy vibe. Yeah. That, like I hadn't seen before. <laughs> Fun fact, 134340 is about Pluto. That's like the planetary marking of Pluto. And it's like about (laughs) how sad Pluto is that it's not a planet anymore, sort of. Wait, okay. So Fake Love, the lead single from Love Yourself, Tear is their first top 10 single in the U.S., it's followed up by another big hit, which features Nicki Minaj called Idol, which is on Answer, right? Which is like just basically a big ass EDM song. Yeah. Having Nicki Minaj on your song is a pretty huge indication of your commercial prowess in America. Obviously, she's one of the biggest American pop stars. I feel like that must have been a huge moment for them. Yeah, and like also like they even had her in a music video. Idol was an interesting song because BTS had just made it, right? Like they had officially had huge hits in America, right? And then they release Idol, which is a song that is EDM. 
and has trap and hip hop and you know it's a typical what we think of as a BTS song at this point and right. then it also incorporated traditional Korean instrumentals mm. and aesthetics so like they're literally singing and dancing along in like Korean palace pavilions and wearing hanbok which is traditional Korean dress and they're dancing with traditional lion dancers and there's right. all this stuff going on so you really have this group they're a South Korean group they have gone from being a small little group in Korea to being right. one of the biggest names in pop collaborating with the yeah. biggest names in pop and they're just like we We've made it. We're going to still sing in Korean and we're going to create stuff that is about our Korean traditions. It's unbelievable. It's such an incredible achievement to have this level of success in an English speaking market and still being able to stay true to themselves in that way. It's fucking incredible, honestly. And they move really quickly from that success onto their next series. What's the Map of the Soul era about, first of all? Let's like lay the groundwork on that for a second. So if Love Yourself was about surprise loving yourself map of the soul <laughs> was based on Jungian philosophy um and it literally oh my God. it's incredible i mean it's literally mind-blowing this whole like all of their the reference points are just so crazy <laughs> so young actually wrote a book called map of the soul and so this is right based on that so persona and then the other songs in the album were named after different parts of Jungian mm-hmm. psychology and stuff so like it's essentially delving into ego and what is persona what is the ego what are you as a person like what parts of you make you and so the album was fronted with boy with love with halsey which is like yeah becomes yet another top 10 hit here in america huge hit I think that was kind of telling about like what the English stuff we now had during the pandemic would look like, which was like very bright. Like you see it and you're like, this is a pop song. I actually find Boys Would Love to be like a little bit more flattened and generic sounding than a lot of their work in the middle period, which like is filled with so much personality and so singular in some way to them. Boys Would Love to me is like a little bit more flattened and generic. I mean, it's still a great song. I don't know. Maybe I'm off on that, but that was my reaction to it going back to it this listen through having listened to Love Yourself era in particular and wings um yeah i think a lot of people agree with that but it was like just like a different (laughs) shift it's like this is more you're like actually no i loved it it's perfect well it kind of makes you wonder like where the aim of k-pop and aim of bts and aim of some of these companies to create the most maximally impacting thing can sometimes cross over into flattening some of the things you like about the group which are the idiosyncrasies and the weirdness yeah i mean i agree with you i think like the most successful bts or they're just the most successful K-pop songs are always idiosyncratic and they make you be like, wait, what was that song? Boy With Love was a great collaboration. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen BTS and Halsey perform it live together, but it's a great performance and like, it's yes. so fun. But like, I don't want to insult it because I do enjoy, like when it comes off, uh, oh, I'm, I'm so not, happy. I'm not I'm insulting like, oh. it. I love generic. I'm just more trying to track what's going on behind the scenes to the extent that we can and figure out what their ambitions here are exactly. And I can only imagine what it must be like to be the first K-pop group to succeed on this level in American popular culture and maybe the pressures that might have been on them or the desire naturally not maybe pressure is the wrong word their desire to make the biggest impact they can here and like what concessions they have to make because they don't make the concession on this record to singing in English for the most part I mean they still are holding true to a lot of the prime BTS core elements 
but I'm interested in kind of like where the concessions come, like putting Halsey on the song. Like I'm sure great collaborator, but that's a great way to put a mainstream American pop star into the mix. And that, as you said, they're very savvy at using collaborations to help break into new markets. So I'm just more trying to like piece that apart in my own little like detective mind about like what they're doing here exactly. Yeah, I think it was kind of the counterpart to Idol in a way. So Idol is like so intensely Korean in aesthetics and Boy With Love is a more American pop song. Yeah. And then the other thing that really strikes me about Map of the Soul, and this has been developing over their whole discography, Mm. is they're so apt at so many different styles. Like even though they do diversify their sounds and they like try lots of different things, they're very like adept at doing these styles. That is always really impressive to me. Like there's also some songs in the Map of the Soul series like Inner Soul or Moon that did start to almost feel like they were doing like 80s nodding rock One Direction-y vibes. Even like Troy Sivan on some level. They're equally good at that as they are at like the smooth R&B as they are at the EDM. It's pretty impressive the breadth of their capacities as musicians. Yeah, and it's just so well done always. Like they don't do something that they aren't sure about. They do it because they know that they can do it because they're just so right. good. Yeah, well, I think it also speaks to the work that goes on behind the scenes. Like they are clearly, I mean, I know we don't maybe know a lot about this, but there's no question to me that these are consummate professionals. Like they work extremely hard on on singing. They work obviously extremely hard on performing. They feel like students in a way. They take this very seriously and that comes across in their adeptness at all of these styles. That was what I was receiving from it. Yeah, I mean, you just like look at their work ethic and your jaw just wants to drop. Obviously, you know, everything in life is like a little bit circumstantial and you have to be in the right place at the right time. But like that is what makes someone who's in the right place in the right time get to the level that BTS are. Like yes, it's just 100%. like they are so dedicated. They have put their all in it. There's no question that there yeah. is excellence happening here. So following Map of the Soul, where is BTS's career commercially, critically in Korea, in other marketplaces, in America? Like they're basically at the peak of their success as I understand it. So in February 2020, Map of the Soul 7 came out and it was a really intense reflection of BTS as seven. What is because they're seven members. This was right in their seventh year. I spoke to the band about it and I asked them if it was a love poem to themselves and RM agreed. So that was like the best moment <laughs> of my life. And this album dropped February 21st, 2020. So that was yes. the start of the pandemic pretty much and worldwide. Right. It was already in China. So this is when things started slowing down. And so I don't know if they were going to do a third one. We'll probably never know. But the next album they released after the Map of the Soul era was in November 2020 and it's called B and it's really like a COVID era album full of like songs about living through COVID and going through lockdowns and being separated from each other and one song is like fly to my room and it's a song essentially like mm-hmm. being home the single was called life goes on and this was like a very kind of moody i wouldn't say mood maybe not moody isn't right but like a slow jam yeah i thought it was like almost soothing and low-key compared to like the maximalism of their general music yeah so it's a very pretty and soft in a certain sense 
it's a comforting COVID era album, which is how I think of it. Yes. B was right. fronted by, again, that song Life Goes On. Um, really comforting, really soothing. It like felt a little bit indie and a little bit low key. Like kind of you can imagine someone putting this together in their bedroom. Before we get into talking about the rest of B and of course the series of massive, successful, more American oriented singles that are about to come out after this. I'm wondering what are some of the unique pressures? I mean, obviously American pop culture has a lot of these things too. But like, I know that there's a unique amount of pressure that's put on some of these K-pop idols, like about what they can say politically about being young. Like how do those pressures work and does BTS chafe against them? And what's their relationship to some of those pressures that exist within the K-pop system? So I do want to clarify that this isn't just a K-pop thing. This is like generally in Korea, there's really intense scrutiny about public presentation and plastic surgery is really normalized. Right. And literally, if you go shopping as a woman, the size is called one size. It's a small. If you're not one size, you can't shop in most stores. So if you're not a right. small, you cannot shop in most stores right. in Korea. Like when I was in right. college, the only store I could shop at was H&M and Zara because those were the only stores that had mediums or larges. You just can't fit in. Like you don't fit in if you're not to certain standards in Korean society. Right. And like there is a right. lot of debate in Korea about this. Like there's a lot of awareness and a lot of movements to try to change things. But people in societies are societies. So it's not just K-pop stars. It's the whole industry exists kind of like in the way that you'll see in different eras of like modeling in the US or like celebrities like there's looks and there's different eras where skinniness is really in or like to the degree where we know anorexia rised in celebrities Mm -hmm. so in Korea same idea but it's kind of more intensified because when you're a celebrity you're not just a celebrity you're a performer you're on stage you're literally they call it an idol right in our mind we know that every single k-pop idol is just a human we know they're not godly idols they're not super (laughs) sure but there is sort of that perception that they are more they should be better in korea there is the idea in a way that we don't really have it in the u.s that like a celebrity is somebody who is in the public space because there's someone who we should look up to so like a celebrity drunk driving ruins their career like forever it's really hard to come back from in the u.s you drunk drive okay you're an asshole you do an instagram apology yeah in korea careers have been ended when a k-pop star misconstrues two historical figures right so like the smallest thing the smallest thing that's got to be difficult to maintain for a long period of time. That's kind of yeah. what I'm getting at here. Like, I wonder how it is. fame can exist on a long continuum with that level of scrutiny, you know? I mean, I think so. I think it's either you get really so adjusted to it that you never say anything that could remotely be misconstrued, yeah. Yeah. or you just don't say anything, or you just say whatever right. you want and hope that people <laughs> defend you. The so pressure like, must be just insane. I, that's what I'm just trying to illustrate for people. Yeah, yeah and like, I think... Being BTS is not all roses. Like, they walk around with like a level of scrutiny and pressure in this country that feels remarkable. I think we have it to a lesser degree in the We US, definitely like we, have it. But yeah. as you said, I think you can get away with much more. I mean, Different. my friend described it to me, who was also a big BTS fan, that like if anybody in BTS did what like Justin Bieber did when he peed in the bucket or whatever, like that would have been the absolute end of their career. Like no question. Even dating is considered taboo because the whole idea is you as a K-pop idol are supposed to have a relationship with your fans. And so if you... Right have a relationship outside of that then that's like almost like you're cheating on us which is not true and many k-pop stars nowadays do have relationships to some degree some are accepted some are like accepted as if fans should have that ability but like as if they're received well or not it often depends on like 
how the singer relays the news to their fan right. or if they're followed by paparazzi often people are like how dare the paparazzi invade their private life yeah. which is like correct it's like it feels like our popular culture values just like amped up to an extreme level or something yeah like that. so so like growing up like you know like when justin and britney dated nobody was like oh yeah. my gosh how could they it was like oh my gosh whoa yeah. i love like so it's yeah, different yeah, but yeah, like yeah. certain k-pop companies will like be like they're allowed to date if they get caught it's a big issue for us. Right. So like you have to right. be careful. Some right. are literally like there's famous for like, we have a dating ban at our company, said one producer. Mm. So, I mean, I get it. Cause like you, what you're doing is selling essentially this youthful ideal. And like the whole point is that if you're dating, it could be a financial risk for the company. Mm-hmm. So like, it's like mm-hmm. you're in this agreement. Right. But I don't really know how well that really goes down. Yeah, so right. BTS and definitely right. under a lot of scrutiny. I mean, like other sort of scrutiny, but like if one of the members mentions a brand of soap, or, or eats this particular yeah. type of chips on a V Live. Yeah, that will get sold right. out in like a minute. Right. So many people are watching you all the time. One of the saddest moments was like there was a, an instance where one member was like seen hugging a tattoo artist, and people were alleging mm-hmm. that they were dating or they were just friends mm-hmm. or who really cares? But like mm-hmm. the female tattoo artist had a really rough time because of that, and like. Mm-hmm. It was just so sad. It was like, you can't even get caught hugging a friend the wrong way yeah. or a person the right. wrong way. You don't know anything. I don't know anything right. about the relationship. Right, 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 right. So I want to conclude this part of our conversation by talking about just the fact that BTS has had a series of their biggest hits yet following B or like attached to B, part of the same era. I don't quite get it, but like kind of like one-off <laughs> singles. You have Dynamite. You had butter. You have permission to dance. Probably their three biggest mainstream Hot 100 hits in America so far. How do you see these songs and like, what does this tell us about what BTS's ambitions are moving forward and like where they're at with their music at this particular juncture? So to be frank, a lot of people are always like, BTS sold out because they're singing in English. Right, which is like a big change. That's a big shift. So BTS and many K-pop groups, when they want to pursue a new market, they release music in that language. So BTS, like I said, they have a Japanese discography that's separate from their Korean discography. Right. So when they have these right. English songs, like people are like, oh, they're selling out for the market. I'm like, no, you guys, they're literally just adjusting. Like there's no problem with this at all. Right. This is in the lineage of what BTS has always done, which is like yeah. adjust to the changing marketplace and create things that work in the context that they're trying to work in, basically. Yeah. I mean, BTS are really good because what they do is they take a trend and they make it their own. And so if you're- right working in a market that's not Korean, you're gonna probably sing in that language. And personally, we're humans, right? So like part of me is just like a little sad that like, you know, they can't keep doing the the idol thing or the life goes on thing and getting the same recognition. But from like a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense. And you know, Butter and Permission to Dance and the My Universe, the Coldplay collab, these all worked really well. So like, if you're gonna localize, you may as well do it in a way that works. I would personally love to see some more English songs that sound maybe a little bit more like we think of as like their Korean stuff kind of a little bit more right. experiment. Right, because it's not just the English language thing. Yeah. There's a sort of sonic cohesion to butter. You know, these are all in conversation much more directly, I feel like, with American pop music tropes of the moment as well. My last question for you is, what is BTS's 
legacy in a K-pop context in the way that K-pop interacts with the world? Like, what is BTS's impact in that regard moving forward? Like, how have they changed everything? I don't think you can change anything more than somebody like BTS does. Like, they changed everything. Like, everything is Mm -hmm. different. Nothing is the same as it was even yesterday. Like, I'm actually just writing it up right now, but I'm talking to a K-pop star who debuted in 2010 and to a huge hit. And, like, she's just like, I just can't keep up. I see what's going on and I don't know. I don't know how to be a K-pop star anymore because things are so different. And, like, BTS are very much, not the cause, but, like, they are that. Like, they are the change that has happened and they've changed things. They've opened up so many doors and fans always say, like, BTS paved the way. There's just so much that's changed. You can't really gauge what's gonna happen like can you think that another group will ever be where bts was i think that'll be really hard it's like saying how like i always go back to the beatles because they're an easy comparison but the beatles you know they did something right they did something big they brought british music to america and then now you don't say like oh adele did something for other british singers it's just adele being adele like we don't think of that anymore so i'm hoping Mm -hmm. that this means that there will be more integration but i don't think we'll see another groundbreaking group like bts because that ground has already been broken hopefully Mm -hmm. you know music changes art changes so i mean i would love to see another group do something like that or an artist do something like that or just the industry become more integrated but like i think bts is the change i don't know yeah. what's gonna come next after bts like there's basically before bts and after bts in yeah terms of how and K-pop is. yeah and like those of us who cover k-pop or talk about k-pop in korea there's an idea of the korean wave uh, like korean cultural wave and mm-hmm. it's not just right now it's like a wave ebbs and flows so like and popularity flows so like k-dramas like the tv shows were popular in china and japan a few years ago and then mm-hmm. it became less popular and then became popular again and the same thing with k-pop happens so sometimes they're popularity and sometimes there's not so like obviously right now we're like at the top of it ever are we at a plateau mm-hmm. or are we still going up and up and up yeah and when right. do we drop or like is that plateau right. a long time i don't know but right. i know bts is right. on top of it all right so let's talk about the pantheon i have my thought i feel like this is going to be one of the groups we've hit a number of times in this podcast which is that they might have different rankings in the pantheon like geographically because they mean something different in different parts of the world Mm. but if you had to put pts in the pop pantheon what tier are you putting them in uh it's really 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 hard but like i mean i'm <laughs> i'm like so inclined to be like their icons they've changed things so much but i know you wouldn't so then my other one was like i because i know you would say no way so then i was like i was like okay like then i think like megastar could be there, but I know you would also because like they're so niche to some people. So then I thought, okay, five yeah. superstars of yours. See, I thought of it, but I think you're wrong. Okay. I mean, I definitely feel like, I mean, what do I know about the Korean music scene? Obviously, they're tier one in Korea. Obviously, like that seems obvious. I feel like here, I just feel like the only reason I'd put them in three is not because I don't see them as huge like they are. My question is really about what comes next for them because it's still been such a short-lived period of success in America and in a lot of the world, let's say. Like even, I mean, even in, I mean, it's really only even in Korea. I mean, it's only been seven, eight, nine years. Let's say in these English-speaking marketplaces, it's been the last five years that they've been, you know, superstars. 
I just feel like it's too early in their career to say that they're into our one at this point. Not because they couldn't get there, but because I feel like we still have yet to see like what the breadth of their influence is. But I do agree with you that they are game changing and that has to count for something. So that's where I sort of start to get confused. Right. Like, I think your tears are very based on like the musicality, which I think the average American person is just like BTS is butter. But like if you're acknowledging all of their musicality, you're like, uh two people wouldn't put them in the same tier. So I think that's like the confusion. But I think they've changed things so much and things are different now because of BTS that like, in my mind, I'm like, they're icons. But again, we don't know what's going to happen in like even (laughs) one year. Like we don't even know what's going to happen in one month. What if the, what if the government decides that Jin needs to enlist tomorrow? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, please no. But like you did put in the tier one, like considered for a Vegas residency, like BTS just sold out Vegas intensely. Like it literally became Vegas BTS town. I The thing is that they're definitely huge right now. I think Mm. the question is that it's like, we're so early in their run that it's like, the legacy can be hard to judge this early on, which is why I would still probably put them in three. Yeah, so I think they're TBD, but I, th- I think they have potential. They have potential for sure. And I th- I think the game changing counts for a lot, but I just feel like I can't wait to see what happens. And there's no question that they have been monumental. They've changed the shape of popular music and they've opened a floodgate. And I think we're only beginning to see what that is going to manifest in the future. That's my opinion. All right, so I'm going to put them in three for now. I hope you'll accept that. I I knew you were going to put them there, so I can accept it, but I think they'll go higher. We'll touch base again in a little bit about it. So my last question for you before we get out of here, and I know this has been a marathon, is what is an underrated BTS song that we haven't spoken about so far that we could send the podcast out on? This is not really a underrated song if you're a BTS fan, but I really, 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 really love. (laughs) Like, I I honestly, like, they played it at the Vegas show I was at, and I didn't know they were going to. And I got really, really, really excited. It's their song, Anpan Man from the Love Yourself mm-hmm. Tear album. Mm-hmm. Anpan Man is a Japanese cartoon character whose mm-hmm. face is a piece of bread. And so, first of all, the song is just really fun and exciting. And also they mm-hmm. compare themselves to the character Anpan Man, somebody who is a hopeful, optimistic, exciting superhero inspiring. And I just think mm-hmm. the song is fun and the meaning is fun. And I just really, really love it. And I get really excited when Anpan Man comes on and every time they perform and I'm just like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Like, I really love I love it. I love that. All right. So let's go out on that one. Tamar Herman, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for letting me ramble for a really long time. I hope you enjoyed and I hope so did the listeners. All right. So there you have it. Pop Pantheon BTS. They are tier three superstars. The judgment is rendered. I want to say a huge thank you to Tamar Herman for coming on the show and educating me and everybody else about the story of BTS, the most popular K-pop act of all time. If you want to know more about them, go pick up her book, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. It's a wonderful deep dive into the story, and I highly recommend it. Please follow us on social media, Pop Pantheon Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. I am at DJLOUIEXI. 
IV on both Instagram and Twitter. Hop in the Discord. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode, all of which will be linked in the show notes and on social media. If you're an audio editor, send us an email at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. Let's see if we can work together. Hop over to poppantheonpod.com, buy our hat, fill out the listener survey, and I want to say, of course, thank you so much to Russ Martin, as always, for his help in making the show happen every week. And until I see you guys next time, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.